Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of our second new podcast series, Ask the Experts. I'm Michael Depot Wilson, your host, and I am equally as excited to be here with you for this new series as I was for our other new series, On the Case. Now, Ask the Experts is going to be similar to On the Case in that I'll be talking one-on-one with our guests about a variety of different topics, but it is going to be different in one key way. For this show, we're going to be asking you, our loyal listeners, to help us out. Now, I could ask a bunch of questions that we know are broadly interesting, but what I really want this show to be is an opportunity to hear from you and to see what specific questions and thoughts you would like our guests to discuss. And we will be getting the opportunity to hear from some of the leaders in the specialty of anesthesiology about a wide range of important topics. So I'm looking forward to hearing from you, our listeners, for all of these upcoming shows. And in order to do that, we'll ask that you email us questions or that you connect with us on Twitter at Anesthesia News to ask specific questions to the guests as we announce that they'll be on the show in the future. And we'll be putting more information about guests that are coming up in future episodes in the description here and on Twitter as well. And just like on the case, we are excited to be able to bring this new series to you each month moving forward. So no more long waits for new episodes of The Etherist. Although, do feel free to go back and give Season 2 a listen if you haven't had the chance yet. Now, since this is the very first episode with our very first guest for Ask the Experts, we didn't have the chance to request questions from our listeners. But our guest holds a unique place for our readers on the website. We have published dozens and dozens of videos that he has produced about airway management. So he has been asked a lot of questions about those videos specifically. And that is what we'll be focusing on today. So without any further ado, I am happy to introduce our first guest for the first episode of Ask the Experts, Dr. William Rosenblatt. Okay, and now I want to introduce our guest, the very first guest to Ask the Experts, Dr. William Rosenblatt. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Yeah, and thank you so much for being the first guest, as I said. Um, so I just want to start off before we get into questions, um, you know, and that we do have a lot of great questions that are based on the Airway on Demand videos that we publish on the site that you uh, provide for us. You produce those and and uh, do all the hard work and you let us uh, get it out there to the world to check out, which we appreciate. Um, but, you know, just to add to that, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about you and tell some of our listeners, you know, who you are, where, where you were, some some of your background. Sure. So I'm a professor of anesthesiology at uh, Yale New Haven Hospital and the Yale School of Medicine. I've been there for almost 30 years now, and it's uh, it's been a really great home to me. Primarily work in the Smilo Cancer Hospital, where we have a huge head and neck cancer population. And so I'm always dealing with difficult airway issues. Also, we have a, a very you know, vibrant residency program, and I'm, I'm head of the airway teaching and the airway uh, management rotation uh, in the residency. And it's just been a, a very fun time and very productive time for me there. And my work there has given me a chance to you know, produce these videos and produce content for my, my airway course, um, which is just really a lot of fun to share it, you know, with the anesthesiology news, you know, uh, readership and and people who follow my other social media. 
Okay, that, that, that's great. And I mean, as I said before, we love we love the videos, and uh, and a lot of the people come to the website specifically to see those every every couple of weeks, which is great. Um, so you know, just again before we get into uh, some of those questions, uh, I just wanted to get a little bit more about your background. So I was I was just going to ask. This is something that um, I'm always interested in talking to uh, people who have you know are, are into their career, doing really well, and you always think you know where did that person get started. When did you first know for sure that you wanted to be an anesthesiologist? Well, that itself is also an interesting story because I, I didn't. Okay. And I went into medical school wanting to be a pediatrician, and I aimed all my sights on being a pediatrician. And then when I got to training, I decided, you know what? I really don't want to be a pediatrician. It just did not fit me, and, and there was nothing that I, I really enjoyed about it. And then when in the middle of my internship, I... I had this disappointed feeling. I remember that there's, there was this mandatory two-week rotation in anesthesiology at my medical school, which was Mount Sinai in New York. And I thought that was one rotation that I, I really enjoyed. Let me think about you know, being an anesthesiologist. I explored it more and then, of course, never looked back. Um, and now the first question we'll get into that this is, came from a video from uh, last year, and this was a video that it was about cricopharyngeus muscle contraction during video laryngoscopy. Now the the commenter uh, whose name is Swigel uh, asked this question: What is the significance of this contraction, and could it hinder intubation? Well. Not everything, you know, in the AOD library is supposed to be, this is how uh, we practice medicine, or this is how you should do a particular laryngoscopy and intubation. What this video showed was an, an interesting phenomenon. You know, we often talk about the cricopharyngeus muscle, you know, in terms of things like the upper esophageal sphincter. And I thought that it was fascinating that during this with surgery and this during this laryngoscopy and intubation, we could actually see the cricopharyngeus muscle contracting. I don't think it would interfere with intubation at all. Um, kind of a curious question. I wonder if it might interfere with the ability to place a supraglottic airway. But most importantly, it probably showed the patient was, well, most importantly, it was an interesting phenomena, but it, it also showed the patient wasn't muscle relaxed or fully muscle relaxed. That might influence what a laryngoscopus is doing at the time. But really, it was just there to show an interesting phenomenon. Is this the first time you had ever actually witnessed that? It's the absolute first time, and I haven't seen it since. So I guess maybe that's where that question came from. It's just uh, maybe they had never seen it before either, and they were wondering what the significance was. Um, it is a great video, though, so we'll, we'll definitely make sure there's a link to check it out. And so let's move on to question two now. So question two is another uh, comment that was left on an airway on demand video on anesthesiologynews.com. And this video was about oxygen insufflation. Uh, the commenter was M. Rashida 86. And the, the question that they asked about this particular video was, was the patient breathing spontaneous or on muscle relaxants? So this particular case was a laryngeal cancer case where the patient was being managed with Thrive, high-flow nasal oxygen, humidified oxygen. And in this case, the patient was on muscle relaxants. They were not breathing spontaneously, of course. And what, what Thrive does at high-flow nasal, um, at about 70 liters per minute, 
is, is two things. The patient stays oxygenated through the process of apneic oxygenation, and CO2 is cleared uh, from the lower airway by several mechanisms. One is probably very high turbulence in the upper airway. The second is through the uh, actions of the cardiac cycle on the lung parenchyma and the large airways, a process that's called cardiobolismus. And also that Thrive increases lower airway pressure, thereby to some extent splinting open uh, the, the, the small airways. And this also helps to facilitate the movement of CO2 out by virtue of the, the two other mechanisms I just mentioned. So moving on to question number three, which comes from a comment made by Irene Osborne on a recent airway on demand video about sleep apnea and a snoring airway. Irene asked, how did you keep the patient oxygenated during this procedure? Do you think the surgical procedures provide a long lasting relief of sleep apnea? So this was actually a sleep endoscopy case, which is a diagnostic case. The surgeon is looking for the site of obstruction in a patient who has sleep apnea. So the patient is spontaneously breathing, so they're actually oxygenating uh, themselves. They're, in this case, there was some low-flow nasal oxygen just to provide an increased FiO2 to the patient. And we were sedating the patient. And of course, because of the sleep apnea, there was you know, a modest drop in the oxygen saturation. We're, we're, we're trying to replicate what happens during a normal sleep cycle. But if the patient got to a point where the oxygen saturation became low to a point that we were concerned, we could, of course, use positive pressure ventilation to, to bring the saturation back up. Some might wonder, well, could we use Thrive in this case, as we did in the last case we just talked about? Thrive would not be a good option for this case because suddenly we would not be replicating the natural occurrences of normal sleep, which is exactly what the surgeon wants to see. Now, as I mentioned a second ago, this was not a surgical procedure. This was a diagnostic procedure. This patient might, depending upon the findings, go on to a surgical procedure for their sleep apnea. But of course, you know, there is some question about certain surgical procedures, certain patients, and whether they do provide long-lasting relief of sleep apnea. That's a question I'm going to leave to the, the surgeons that are, are doing this type of work and are inventing new ways to take care of these patients. And now let's go on to our fourth and final question. And this question comes from a commenter on a video article about specialized intubation via supraglottic airways. This is a recent video that was published on the website, I believe right at the end of January. Um, and the commenter is Chamaza87. And this reader left a comment and a question that includes a little bit of a story beforehand. So here it is. The Fast Track LMA was an answer for survival for many of us in rural areas where advanced devices were not available. I found it useful for difficult intubation cases. Once an ET was in place, I would leave the Fast Track inflated until I had emptied the stomach with an NG tube. Once I was satisfied that the stomach was empty, I would deflate the Fast Track but leave it in place. At the end of surgery and after suctioning the stomach one last time, I would inflate the fast track and remove the ETT. 
When the patient was breathing spontaneously and was alert, I would deflate slowly and remove it. This was not the method I was taught, but being remote and alone, it gave me the confidence of an empty stomach and a patent airway. If I had to reintubate, all I had to do was induce, reinflate the fast track, and proceed with reintubation. And that's the comment from the reader. Okay. Well, this is an excellent use of, of available resources that someone has to them. I did do a lot of work um, in the developing world, and so I can appreciate what this clinician was, was trying to achieve. We do know that over the years, there's been a lot of stories and publications about safe alternative uses of superglottic airways. Uh, intubation is just one of those. In fact, Dr. Brain's you know, first intubation through an LMA in the 1980s, they needed this innovation. They had a patient who could not be intubated by routine means, and Dr. Brain developed that technique. What the questioner describes is something close to um, what a Dr. Bailey in London described in the 1990s. And that was the Bailey maneuver where uh, at the end of a case, they would switch out from a tracheal tube to a laryngeal mask airway and let the patient emerge smoothly on the laryngeal mask airway. And in some ways, that's part of what this uh, questioner is is asking. Now, one thing I need to emphasize here is that the questioner talked about deflating the fast-tracked LMA during the period of the surgical procedure where the fast-track LMA was left in place. And, and that also is very important. Joe Brimacon uh, from Australia many years ago demonstrated that an inflated LMA probably causes undue pressure on soft parts of the, uh, of the upper airway, which have bony structures behind them, such as the hard palate. And if the inflated LMA is there for long periods of time, it probably could damage uh, those mucosal services. So if this device is going to be in situ for a long period, it should be uh, deflated. There's not good data about that, whether that reverses the effect that Joe Brimacon saw, but I think this uh, commenter is on the right track. Well, that does it for our reader questions for this episode, but I do have a couple of non-clinical questions for you. The first question is, is there a book or a podcast that you've recently really enjoyed reading or listening to? So I just finished reading um, Timothy Snyder's book, Aral Malady, and uh, some of your listeners might know his book that was published about four years ago uh, on, on tyranny. And he happens to be a Yale professor. Um, I, haven't, I haven't met him. But it's a, it's a one hour malady is a, a wonderful uh, recount of a very sad story in his own healthcare and really reflected how difficult healthcare can be, the, the way it's currently um, organized, especially the way it's financed in the United States. And he had the opportunity to compare it to um, different countries. He didn't necessarily get better care in another part of the world, but he does reflect on you know how easy it was to get care as opposed to what he experienced in the United States. So I, that's a, a reading. Both his books are, I think, really recommended reading. 
thank you for the recommendation. I have not read uh, either of them, but I will put both of them on my list, <laughs> uh, especially with the healthcare stuff. Those kinds of insights are always really, really nice to have. I think he bemoans um, the loss of control of clinicians uh, regarding you know how we run healthcare. Uh, so all right, I have a last question for you. Generally speaking, uh, over the last little while, I, what's the most interesting or profound thing that you've heard? Um, when it comes to airway management, I have a, a very good friend, which many of your listeners may have heard of. It's, he's a, a, a doctor from Arizona. His name is uh, John Sackles. And John is a emergency medicine physician, very involved in the airway community. And one thing that's always puzzled me and maybe puzzled some of your listeners, is that in the operating room, when it comes to video laryngoscopy, the anesthesiologist prefers to use a hyperangulated video laryngoscope blade, one that, one that looks around the curve. And it really has revolutionized what we do in the operating room. In emergency medicine, they tend to favor a video laryngoscope that has a blade that kind of replicates the old-fashioned direct laryngoscope blade. It's not a hyperangulated blade. And I didn't understand this. And one, one day I said to John, please explain it to me. And he said, very simply, the hyperangulated blade makes difficult intubation easy. And that makes a lot of sense. You know, if you have a patient who's a generic difficult intubation patient, the blade allows you to look around the curve. So the hyperangulated blade makes difficult intubation easy, but it makes easy intubation difficult. In other words, in the emergency department, where the vast majority of patients are going to be pretty easy to intubate, I mean, they're coming off the street, they really, the vast majority are gonna be pretty simple. To now introduce this hyperangulated blade where you have to now manipulate your tracheal tube around the curve just, just increases the complication. So instead, they prefer this blade that gives them a more direct view of the larynx. So just to repeat, uh, Dr. Sackles, by the way, his avatar on Twitter is Airway Man, and I suggest people look up Airway Man. The hyperangulated blade makes Difficult intubation, easy, and easy intubation, difficult. I appreciate that. Thanks for for sharing those. Uh, the, you know, obviously all the clinical insights, as well as some of uh, some of these other, uh, you know, interesting things that you've read and and, and heard lately. Um, so I just want to thank you again for being our first guest uh, on our new podcast, uh, Ask the Experts. And you know, hopefully we'll have you back uh, again in the, in the near future. And, and maybe you can answer some more questions about uh, airway on demand videos or some other, uh, some other topics that might be coming up in the future. Thank you. And um, I really appreciate the support that Anesthesiology News has been giving to Airway on Demand with publishing these videos. I've also enjoyed the Etheris podcast. Uh, thank you for doing that. And um, I'd be happy to come back. Thank you so much, Dr. Rosenblatt, for being our very first guest here on Ask the Experts. And thank you to all of you for joining us. 
Now, I would like to formally announce that our next guest for Ask the Experts is going to be Dr. Amy Pearson. She's a pain physician and an anesthesiologist and the past president of Women in Anesthesiology. She's also wonderful to follow on Twitter where she shares a lot of great insights about the specialty as well. And we'll put more information out on Twitter and in the description about the topics that we'll discuss with Dr. Pearson. And we'll also give you the information for how to submit questions to Dr. Pearson as well. So we're very excited about that. And we hope that you join us for the next episode. And last but not least, please subscribe and rate the show for us. Uh, We're excited about what we have to offer in the future. And we'd love to be able to share that with you as it comes out. And if you haven't already, definitely check out the other shows that we have on the channel, On the Case and The Etherist. Uh, You can find those right here in the channel if you scroll down a little further. Um, Thank you so much for joining us again this week. And we look forward to seeing you uh, in the future with, uh, with future episodes and future guest interviews. Thanks so much. Anesthesiology News Presents Ask the Experts was produced this month by me, Michael DePoe Wilson. It was edited by Ken Christensen. Our music comes from Blue Dot Studios. Our editorial director is James Pruden. The rest of the team is Richard Tordo, Justin Kaback, Blake Dennis, Betty Zong, Christian Janicone, Kwang Yi Chung, and Sophia Lee. Ask the Experts is a project of Anesthesiology News, the most widely read publication for the specialty and the McMahon Group.